Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Ethan Weiss. Ethan is currently an entrepreneur in residence at Third Rock Ventures while still maintaining a small clinical practice in preventive cardiology. He trained at Johns Hopkins and UCSF. He has dedicated time to the fields of preventive cardiology, metabolism, and nutrition, just to name a few of the things Ethan has helped move forward. Today, Dr. Weiss will let us know how his medical career and personal life has influenced his perception of mortality. Ethan, welcome, and why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself? Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, where do you want me to begin? Like, uh, as well, I, I guess I'll, I'll give you like a very short bio, hopefully short enough. Uh, so I actually uh, grew up in Baltimore and had a uh, both my parents are academics. My father was a, an academic cardiologist who just retired at Hopkins. And I ended up there for medical school, did my residency there and came to San Francisco and 25 years ago now to do cardiology fellowship and, and to do my uh, research fellowship. And I spent the better part of that time being a physician scientist and uh, working on trying to understand metabolic disease and uh, recently in the past couple of years have moved on to a new adventure, but that's kind of my short version of a long life. Yeah, that's great. And definitely have a lot to say otherwise, I'm sure. But with your dad being a physician, do you think that impacted your view on mortality? And, and I mean, I guess your dad is probably, I don't know, how old is he? He is 82. Uh, you know, I don't know if his being a doctor specifically impacted my view on mortality. I don't think I thought a lot about mortality other than, you know, I do remember vividly and will never forget the image of my grandfather at his funeral. And uh, we went, this was in 1982, I think. And I so I was 13 years old and uh, I went with my father cause we had to make sure that it was the right person who was going to get buried Mm. And I remember them opening the casket and seeing my grandfather, who didn't really look anything like my grandfather to me. Uh, and I also remember watching my father cry for the, for the first time, and I think only time I can recall uh, at the sight of his, of his father lying there in a casket. But other than that, I, I don't think my dad, you know, I, I, I'm sure my dad had patients die, and I'm sure we discussed it, but it, didn't, it wasn't something that I brought home or thought a lot about. When you saw your grandfather in the casket, why? What was the the story with the verification? Like, why do you guys? Why did you guys have to say yes? This is him. Was there something that had happened? In I terms don't. Of like... No, I don't recall. I thought I. I again, it was a long time ago. Was okay, forty-two years ago, forty-one years ago. I um, I just remember being told that this was standard protocol that somebody had to confirm, and my dad didn't want to go by himself and. I offered kind of, I think somewhat um, naively I offered to go because I figured oh, well, whatever, it won't bother me. And no one else wanted to go. So I, I went with him. Do you think that was kind of a curiosity about mortality or dying or? I think or it just... was arrogance that I <laughs> thought I was probably better equipped to deal with really heavy things at, the, at a young age at 13 than, than I actually really was. I, I don't think... I was particularly curious about it. I think I was just, like I said, probably pretty arrogant about it. 
do you remember feeling humbled in that moment? I, I don't know if humbled is how I would describe it. I think it was more just completely freaked out. It was definitely the first time I re- recall seeing a dead body. And it was weird that it was my grandfather. And of course, like, it's the last image I ever have of him. And I just remember him looking odd. And I couldn't really describe it any different than that. It was, uh, I don't I don't think it was humbling per se, but it was definitely strange. I got you. That makes sense. And did your family kind of work with you around those emotions or that the oh, hell no. freaking uh, out? No, 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 hell no. I mean, again, I, I wasn't like, I didn't let anybody know that I, I was kind of weirded out by the whole thing because at the time I was really there to support my dad who was clearly pretty emotionally upset about it. And so I tried really hard as best as a 13 year old can do to, to kind of concentrate on what my job was, was, which was to be there for my dad and not make myself the kind of the problem. I was there to be a solution. Right. Right. Problem. So you're trying to show support and just be, to be there, be present. Exactly. Yeah. And again, like naive that I thought I could do that as a 13 year old, super naive that my parents would think, I could do that as a 13. Like I, I can't even imagine letting my kids do something. Not that they would even ever want to or would entertain it, but I can't imagine letting them do it. Yeah. I mean, while it might've been like a moment of this bravado or arrogance of a 13 year old kid, if that was your intention though, that's pretty noble overall. Yeah. I, I, again, like I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what all the details were that were floating through everybody's mind at the time. I just remember that, my grandmother wasn't going to do it. My mother wasn't going to do it. My sister was, you know, definitely not. She was younger. She was definitely not going to do it. There really wasn't anybody else. My dad was an only child and he needed somebody to go with him. And so I offered to go again. I think I was naive. Um, I did never seen a dead person before. I didn't have any idea what, if any impact that would have on me. And so I just went. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and it's also very different than other guests on the podcast so far that you kind of sought this out. So I think that's an interesting thing to, to think about. I um, guess, although I, I'm not exactly sure I knew what I was doing. I mean, I'm pretty sure I, I had no idea what I was doing. It wasn't like <laughs> I was like, oh, I need to go see a dead person. I definitely wasn't afraid of it. And I, you know, I was trying to be, to be supportive for my father who was clearly very distraught about his own father having died. It was the first one of my grandparents to die. It was really the first person, important person in my life who died. I'm sure there were other relatives, distant relatives who died, but I, I don't recall anybody else. So then the next time you dealt with death and did you refer back to that experience and did it make it easier? Uh, such a good question. I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think the next time there was a death in my life, it was probably, and I'm just spitballing because I don't recall exactly. It was such a long time ago, but I think I had a few classmates or people above or below me who died in car accidents around that time. And mm. that was probably the next time that somebody I knew died. Uh, and, uh, but of course I didn't like, you know, tangibly see them. Yeah. Right. Physically. So, yeah. yeah. See, see their, yeah. see their expired bodies I have this, for sure. I have this other recollection, like from being a, a child and I was, I were, and again, this could easily be a dream or made up, but I have this recollection from when I was a child that we were driving in a car. So I went to school far enough away from my house that we had a carpool 
and there were, you know, a number of families in the carpool and you'd go around and pick up different people. So we were driving not towards my school, but for, away from my, uh, away from the school, away from my house to go pick up somebody else in the carpool. And I remember seeing, and again, this could easily be made up, but I remember seeing a dead body um, and lot, you know, in, I think what had been a car accident anyway, it's just like some other early recollection of, of seeing a dead body. And it was not something, I mean, it's not something most people do routinely, right? You don't, you don't like go around looking for dead bodies. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, I think the large majority of people in the world probably never see a dead body unless it's in the setting of a funeral. I guess you're right. And uh, you know, now that I've seen so many and seen so many people die and probably to some extent take it for granted. It, it's good to remember that it's pretty unusual. It's definitely helpful to remember that because, yeah, yeah when when we have seen so many through through medicine, it's we kind of lose that lose sight of how people might react, and it's almost like sometimes we're like, well, why are they reacting like this? But it's it is a startling thing, and it does take time to get used to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I even remember. Uh... You know, when I first started working with mice in a laboratory setting, I remember being somewhat moved, I guess, for lack of a better word, about about them dying. You know, to you know, to watch a creature sometimes to actually actively kill an animal, it's it's a bizarre when you start to think about it too much, it's it's super bizarre. And and again, I think I became somewhat numb or immune to that after doing it for so long. And I remember every time somebody new would start and you kind of go through this with them that there were some people who just like really had a hard time kind of uh dealing with this you know sort of process and i do remember sometimes thinking like gosh i i need to step back and and allow that this is not normal and that just because it's become normal in my life doesn't mean that it's it's at all normal and that that a, a normal person probably finds it really upsetting yeah. And did that ever help you reframe things about how you spent your time, like relating it back to your own mortality? No, not really. I mean, I, I, uh, no, I don't, I don't think I related the animal work to my own mortality or human mortality, but it was, de- it definitely was a, you know, it's a, the concept of, of an, of a living creature that then dies and, you know, thinking about all the things that we all think about sort of what happens to that, person or that thing and what happens to their consciousness and you know all those things feel fit together i think but yeah when you are practicing preventive cardiology and i guess even through your basic science work we generally think of medicine and research as ways to stave off mortality uh is that has that ever consciously entered your mind through your work well i think as i've gotten older and as i've practiced medicine in the outpatient setting for longer and I've had a number of patients who've now, you know, died. Uh, I've had to deal with their mortality in ways that I never understood. And I had to kind of grow into this concept that you can't keep everybody alive forever. And that sometimes your job in caring for your patients means helping them have what I would characterize as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a death that's free from from 
as many bad things as possible, right? A, yeah. The most dignified, painless, you know, death possible. And I have begun to try in some of these cases where I've had a longstanding patient who's gone on to a point where it was clear there was not much more anyone could do other than comfort them through their own death. I've come on to, to begin to try to explain to them and to families that, that I believe we should as a society celebrate death much more so than we, than we do. And uh, obviously that's a different context than like a child being run over by a car or some other unexpected death or premature death. But these are people who've lived full lives and for whom medicine is no longer able to, kind of offer anything other than just comfort and dignity. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And through doing this project so far, I've come across this term called, quote, a good death. So it sounds like that's kind of what your focus has become with some of these patients that are older in age and, you know, the medical treatments that we have available are no longer serving them. So trying to facilitate what, what a good death is like for those people that you've developed yeah, I mean, I think patient. you watch enough, I watched enough bad deaths, mostly on the inpatient side, right, in the CCU or other, you know, inpatient settings, sometimes, you know, through my own patients on the outpatient side, but I've watched enough bad ones to know that, like, what I could offer them more than, you know, sort of the, the latest, greatest medical intervention was some perspective and, and at least a path towards a good death. And, and, and on the inpatient side, you know, I was very humbled by what I learned from my palliative care colleagues. And that was an area when I was practicing a lot of inpatient medicine that I felt comfortable in and thought a lot about. And uh, I don't do that anymore. So it's not, it doesn't happen, but. I yeah. But it's still, it's still an important skill set that sounds like you've translated from the inpatient setting to outpatient. Yeah, it's, it is. Uh, I think there's a moment right when, you know, we're never trained to say I give up or I, I can't do this and learning when the right time to shift the focus from what we can offer in you know, terms of medical interventions to what we can offer in terms of, you know, a quote unquote good death. It's, it's a hard, that's a hard transition, but I've found a lot of satisfaction in that. And I find patients and, you know, obviously particularly their families are incredibly grateful. Uh, and I always tell them, the patients and the families that the focus is really gonna shift in large part to, you know, comfort and dignity for the patient, but, but also support for the family. And that that's such an important part that gets overlooked so often because so many people carry around so much guilt and anxiety and other things around what is this like incredibly profound and irreversible event that happens. Yeah. And I've had similar satisfaction of kind of guiding people to that good death and taking care of the family is just as important. I want to jump back to the medical education piece though. Do you think that we could do a better job either in medical school or in a training environment to help physicians have these conversations and just to develop the skill set. And if, if so, just off the top of your head, like what would a model like look, look like that? That's a great question. I, I don't know. Honestly, I'm not sure how, I mean, this is a big one, right? Cause people are not used to it and they're not, uh, experienced in talking about and 
death and focusing on different ways people die and things like that. Obviously, I think that more the sort of palliative care movement evolves and becomes an important part of of medicine, modern medicine and, you know, hospice care and things like that. I think people are becoming at least more aware of it. I, I don't know about training. I think I'm somewhat skeptical that we can ever train people who aren't inclined or good at having difficult conversations to become good or interested in having difficult conversations, whatever the difficulty is, like what the difficult, you know, you can change death to something else. They're a series of difficult conversations we all have to have. Sure. And I'm not really sure. I'm not sure how you would train people. I, I do remember having a really serious, a series of very difficult conversations as a resident when I was, you know, my twenties back in, um, in Baltimore mm-hmm. and, yeah, I, I mean, I remember thinking about that. Um, there was one night in particular when I was a—I think I was—I I was a resident on the inpatient service, and one of my patients who I was cross-covering for got really sick and ended up going to the ICU. The patient had had a DNR DNI order, and so he ended up dying. And we had to notify—he died in the ICU, but not intubated and without any CPR or any other. Uh, resuscitation and we had to notify the rest of the team and and then the family and I remember sitting with the you know his wife came in and I remember sitting with her in a, in a waiting room adjacent to the ICU and she was devastated and really upset and crying and I remember thinking this is terrible I can't even believe I'm telling the story out loud but I remember thinking like I'm on call tonight and my pager was going off like constantly Mm-hmm. And I, all I could think about was like, I don't really have time to be here. Like, I, I have to go. Like, I, right. this is not like, this is just, this is miserable. And uh, that was like the first experience. And obviously that's not a context. I should never have been there. And, uh, you know, it should have been somebody who really didn't have any constraints on time or real constraints on time who, who could sit there with that woman. Cause that, that was such an important part of her life and her grieving and, and the fact that I was sitting there really distracted wanting not to be there was, was not probably not good for her. Well, and, and as much as she needed someone who was actually present in that moment, it, it was also just not enough. It was an unfair system to you as well, because in a way you were dealing with that death, but you just have to compartmentalize and move on. Oh yeah. And it was a terrible death. I mean, it was uh, I'll never forget because the patient, this is now like 25 more than that 27 years ago patient at ipf and uh, i'd gotten called because he was desatting he was already on like high flow oxygen i went i went to see him and he looked terrible he was super tachypnic and so we decided so i called the icu and they came down they evaluated him and they said yeah we should bring him up to the icu and we ended up you know putting him um you know, on a gurney and transitioning him from the high flow oxygen in the room to what we could deliver through a tank. And it just wasn't even anywhere close to as much oxygen as he was getting. And so he became very distressed, like even more distressed than he had been when we moved him to this portable oxygen system. And then like to make matters worse, we went and the elevator that we were supposed to have that was dedicated to taking patients up and down to the IC went down instead of up. Oh, this process like went on and on 
it felt like for you know for hours it was probably yeah. like an extra few minutes but at that time it felt like forever and again we knew this patient had a dnr dni order so we knew there was no path towards intubating him and so we were basically watching him die in front of our eyes it was yeah. it was brutal just for the audience um pulmonary fibrosis is a really bad disease that we still don't have a lot of therapies for outside of transplant and like ethan's saying when they kind of go downhill there's not a lot you can do for them so it is a, a brutal thing to witness did you feel more in over your head when you were 13 with your grandfather or as a resident dealing <laughs> with mortality i mean you know look the when I, I can barely recall my existence as a 13 year old. Okay. I don't think yeah. I was conscious. Like, I don't think I was deeply aware enough of my own kind of thoughts to be, to think about it. I, I probably would have been more bothered by what happened when I was an intern, but I was an intern and I was, you know, this was back in the pre-work hours restriction days. I was exhausted. I mean, I was yeah. already exhausted enough from just being on call, but I was chronically exhausted from having been on call throughout that year to that point i mean it was just you know i was just trying to survive and uh, i think you know they it breeds a level of of carelessness i guess that's maybe not even the right word but you really sensitivity yeah i mean you really are made you're forced to kind of focus a bit on on basic survival instincts and everything else is a is a distraction and so you know, again, it just doesn't bring out the best in, in us as human beings or doctors. Now, long-term, was it good for me to have had that experience? It certainly wasn't great for the patient and it was terrible for his wife. Was it good for me? Like, I still remember it pretty, pretty vividly. And mm-hmm. it probably does color the way that I think about things now. Like, I do think there were other examples, of, especially from my residency, that I do remember vividly where I, I, I can recall being really uncomfortable with the way things ended up happening. And it probably has colored the way I I think about, or I practice medicine now as a, as an adult. Yeah. I I mean, that kind of leads me into a next question is how these experiences of medicine helped you learn how to deal with grief and death and loss in your own life. Well, uh, it's a great question. I mean, I've been very lucky, I guess, in some ways that I still to this day haven't had too many people close to me, you know, die. Uh, my parents are both alive and my wife's parents are alive and, um, you know, distant relatives and other people. Uh, but I haven't had a close, close friend die. I had a college friend who was, I would say, somewhat close die. Mm-hmm you know, 15, 20 years ago, but, um, I haven't dealt with a lot of death on my, in my personal life. Um, I've dealt with a lot of kind of near death or almost death, but, yeah. um, I think my focus, you know, again, as an adult now, obviously I was an adult then, but like as a true adult and with the, with the benefit of all of these years of experience and, and with the time that I have, uh, to be a more thoughtful, you know, caring person and doctor, I, I probably have a better concept of what I believe is a good death. And, uh, I don't think I could have believed that there was such a thing as a good death in, Mm -hmm. in the, you know, in my twenties, I think we're sort of trained at least in the way I was trained in, in medical school and residency that all death is bad. 
and it, it there is there are people I think who still really believe that, and I think they can be great doctors. And in some ways, like if you're a young person who, you know, has a reversible illness that could be treated, you want one of those people by your side. Actually, COVID was such an interesting time for me because everything I'd learned about people dying in an ICU setting was completely turned upside down because like you're not supposed to, if you're in the ICU for some period of time, whatever it was, you know, these, some of these people were there for 60, 70, 80 days. Like you're mm -hmm. not supposed to ever get out. You, you know, those people just never used to live before. And so it took a few of those experiences to recognize that you don't want to give up on people. And in fact, I, I got a letter or an email, uh, I think it was a text message from, a, from one of these patients who thanked me. This is way after, you know, I'd been taking care of him, thanked me for was not giving up on him. Was this, was this patient a COVID patient? Yeah. Was this one of the patients that you took care of early in COVID in New York? Yeah. 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 yeah I was, I was going to ask you about that experience and because I mean, that was essentially ground zero. And I mean, I, I joined the COVID epidemic pandemic a couple months after you, but I had a little bit more data than that. I mean, that was a crazy time. And uh, I've obviously gone through a lot of thinking about, that time a lot of introspection and self-reflection um it but yeah i mean i do of all the people that i took care of i remember this person the best mm -hmm. and i remember that at the beginning of my i was only there for two weeks but i at the beginning of that time in new york i remember being somewhat surprised that we were pushing as hard on some of these people who like i said in any other setting in a modern icu that we would have stopped. Right. And I was surprised that we were doing that. I thought, gosh, this is super weird. Like maybe this is just a cultural thing about this hospital or this setting that people aren't comfortable, you know, having conversations about end of life and admitting that there may be a time when it's better to focus on comfort and dignity. And, and yet then here was this patient, you know, who basically survived despite all of the odds and I think that was probably true of, I don't know if your experience was the same, but that was true of a lot of these patients. They just, they shouldn't have lived. And many of them did, despite like lengthy, lengthy, complicated stays in the ICU with multiple complications. And here was this patient thanking me for not giving up on him, which was kind of amazing. Yeah, I definitely had some similar experience. Like there was two cases I remember pretty clearly. There were younger people that had metabolic disease and were intubated for weeks but through their intubation they they were saturating in the 70s for yeah. for weeks and you're just thinking like what are we doing what are we doing and then you know whatever the 28th day of their icu stay like things suddenly turn around and you're like i i don't know anything anymore <laughs> so it was truly truly surprising in that regard well, it is because again, like I think you, you, there's an evolution that we go through probably to become comfortable with letting go and saying I can't do anything else, and then I kind of had to de-evolve back to wow, we're we don't want to give up on people too too soon, right? Death is irreversible, and yeah, it's really heavy to think like, okay, well, I'm gonna be this modern kind of, you know informed doctor and i'm going to help somebody through a very miserable process in a way that kind of wouldn't 
normally happen. We're going to like not make them miserable and focus on comfort and dignity. And, and yet maybe, maybe we're doing that too much and maybe we're just not even giving them enough of a chance. And then of course it makes you wonder like how many times has that happened in the rest of my career? Like, were we right to think enough is enough? Right. All the different times that we've done that. But I think, I think the frustrating part overall was, yes, we, I, I'm imagining anyone who was in an ICU during COVID could point to five, five of these stories or something like that. I don't know. It depends on how long you were there. Um, that make you question all this stuff. But then there's still the other hundreds, if not thousands of people that lingered in the ICU, intubated on CRT for weeks and ultimately still died. Yeah. Well, that's a fair point. And, and I guess, you know, as a society, we have to kind of think, of, and we weren't thinking at all. <laughs> well, we weren't really thinking for sure. You're right. And yeah. there was a natural, I mean, I got to New York probably two weeks or a week after the peak of the, you know, misery and the stories I heard, not so much at the hospital where I was working, but at one of the affiliate hospitals from what was going on even a week or two before I got there were that they were actively having to ration basic things like ventilators and, and, you know, renal, renal replacement devices right. just because they didn't have enough of them and that they would actively have to decide like if two people coded at the same time, which one were they going to go try to save? Cause they couldn't address the number of people. I mean, this is back when they were putting people in a cafeteria uh, you know, that there were ICUs throughout every free space in an entire hospital. Right. And it was basically like one giant code and they just had to kind of think, where are we going to go? Yeah. So, Everything during that time was an emergency. And when that's the, when that's the case, nothing is an emergency. And yeah, it's, I mean, just such a traumatic experience for everybody. Well, and, and at that time, what's different, I think from, it couldn't, it, you can't help but think about, wartime right like i grew up on mash and you think about like what those doctors in a you know mobile surgical unit on a warfield would would be you know dealing with and i'm sure it was horrific and in some ways even more horrific because it was bloody and gory but they didn't have to worry about dying themselves right necessarily. like that was the other thing is at that time there was no vaccine and no treatment for covid and you know we were all under the impression that if we got it we we could very much die ourselves so it was like a just a really intense time yeah i i shared that same fear for months for months that oh i'm gonna go to work and maybe i'm going to die from going to work and then, yeah and, and in that case there's no pop-off valve there's no relief anywhere because it's just work sleep hope i don't die like yeah it was it was rough but thanks for volunteering because as we know there was not enough hands on deck, even with all the extra help that was available for those situations. And, and now I don't know what it's like in San Francisco, but still in the East coast here in North Carolina, staffing issues have remained an, an issue from ED nursing to inpatient nursing and, and everything in between. Um, it just has kind of like a washout consequence of, of COVID. Yeah, it's hard for me to say because I'm so disconnected from the sort of everyday workings of the hospital. Uh, and I can only hear things, you know, very second or third hand. So it's kind of hard for me to say. I think there's clearly been a burnout among all healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I'm sure some of it, if not most of it, relates to COVID, but I, I think there are probably other factors as well. Definitely. Uh, and I think overall morale is seems like it's low. And uh, again, it's it's just an impression. I'm not really, it's hard for me to kind of say that with certainty because I'm not there, but the impression I get is that morale is low. I think you're spot on uh, uh, without going into too much of a, a tangent about like the system and yeah. corporatization of medicine. You're, you're spot on with that um, impression. But when you, you were just recently on the drive with Peter Atia and I'm just sharing this because that's how I was first exposed to you four or five years ago at this point. And then we connected through Twitter and you've always been available as a great resource for just even as a listening ear. And I appreciate you for that. But you had mentioned on the recent episode that you kind of had like a midlife crisis. Was that related to your mortality at all? Uh, not obviously. I'm sure, you know, as a now almost 54 year old man that you it can't help you somewhat related, at least tangentially to the idea that, you know, there's, there's a finite amount of time that I have left on this earth and, and that's clear and obvious. And so I think, you know, it forces you or it forced me to kind of really think about what was important to me and uh, how I wanted to spend that time and maximize that time. Absolutely. What did you determine? What are the, the things that you have decided that you're going to focus on with whatever remaining days you've got? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, look, it's funny because I got into medicine. My father, you know, was an academic physician and, you know, just recently retired. And while I didn't really think I was going to be a doctor as a kid and not even really until partway through college, everything I knew about doctoring was within the context of academic medicine. And it was all I ever knew it was all I ever thought I was going to do. And I think I was you know, everything I had done in my career and I don't regret anything I did, but everything I did in my career was really colored by a set of expectations that I think were somewhat imposed on me and uh, about what success looked like and what was important. Right. And, mm -hmm. and that was about, you know, being, you know, progressing through the academic hierarchy and leadership and all these other things. And I definitely realized even before COVID that that was not, going to be a, a you know important fundamentally important to me uh, i think with with covid and everything else and getting older i think i realized that like you know i should basically focus on what i want to do and not what i feel like i should do it's simple right just do what you want i mean and i'm blessed because i have the ability to do that I, not everyone does I and mean, people plenty of people in the world don't have a choice about what they get to do for their, you know, lives, they just need to focus on putting food on the table. And so I, I'm in a very fortunate, blessed position to be able to have that ability to be able to say this great job that people would literally kill for is not doing it for me. And if I wake up in 30 years, I'm dying, I'm going to be boned if I haven't tried to do something else. Yeah. I mean, I think it's incredible that you have the awareness to see that now. And honestly, congratulations that you're taking control and taking your attention back to, to do what it is you want to do, whatever that is. Yeah. I, again, I want to emphasize how lucky I am to be able to do that. Cause it is pretty, 
unusual to be able to have that the for, that fortunate. And I'm even more fortunate because I think I had financial security from my wife, who's very successful, to be able to to kind of take that chance um, and kind of start over at a relatively old age. Yeah, that's awesome. When you had kids, do you think that influenced your views on mortality? I know you've talked publicly about one of your kids a lot. Um, I mean, sure, you think a lot about your, you know, they, they become instantly the kind of most important thing in your life and maybe the most important thing ever in your life. And you can't help, of course, but think about, you know, if something bad happens to them. In our case, you know, we had two daughters, one uncomplicated, you know, healthy daughter who's, who's older, who's now almost, she's going to be 20 in November. And, and then our younger daughter, who's 16, will be 17 in August, did have this genetic condition. It was never life-threatening. I, I never had any, any belief that it was life-threatening. We, we knew it would be life-altering, but mm -hmm. it was not, it was not going to be life-threatening. I think that was a fortunate place and allowed us to, to, to think in a way that we wouldn't have been able to to do so if we if we had been worried about it being a, a life threatening or life shortening condition, um, so it uh, and it definitely has had an impact. It and she has had an impact on on me in countless ways that I okay. know of, and I'm sure in many others that I can't even imagine. Yeah, I don't have kids yet. I hope to one day, but I. It's always interesting to hear about how mortality and, and kids impact people and. Do you, have you, I know that you said that most of your relatives are still living. Have your kids had to deal with mortality yet? And if so, did you guys hit it head on or was there some protecting? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting to think about. It's a great question. They've not dealt with a ton there. One of my daughters had a classmate or not a classmate. I think it was a, somebody in a, in a grade below uh, who died in a, like a freak accident, like a skateboarding accident. Hmm. And they were all very upset about it and you know they definitely they look at death very differently than than i do it just hasn't really touched them in a like a really tangible way they've never had anybody close to them or a close relative die they're still really young i mean they're yeah. young, relatively young 16 and 19 but uh, i think they i mean the close this is gonna sound silly but the closest the the most impactful experience that we've had in our family relating to death had to do with the death of a dog um which that's not silly at all well, i mean i think losing your dog is is a massive loss but go ahead continue. Was, well, no, i was just gonna say this was a uh, we had a family dog he he actually we got him because you know because of ruthie's condition he was he was a uh, you know a retired or failed depending on the <laughs> um, guide dog and uh and he was our family dog and and uh we'd actually gotten a puppy during covid N not even really intentionally just more just because everyone else was getting puppies during covid and we thought we could handle another dog and just a few months after we got the puppy the older dog um came up to me and i was you know petting the dog and I felt that it had this gigantic lymph node in its neck. And, you mm -hmm. know, I never examined my kids or anyone close to me, my dog, and I just couldn't help it in this case. And I told my vet about it casually. And she said, you need to bring him in immediately. And he ended up having lymphoma, which is pretty common in labs. And, um, 
and actually we ended up treating him uh oh uh we treated him because you know i had a conversation with the oncologist it was kind of weird time because it was COVID, so i never got to meet the guy face to face it was all on the telephone okay uh, and then when i would bring him down for his treatments he i would just they would come out and take him out of the car and it wasn't like I ever, I never really laid eyes on the doctor. I just had these conversations. Anyway, we did treat him. He did okay for a couple of months and then kind of failed treatment. And the doctor told me directly and clearly as I would hope and expect there was really that he recommended that we, that we just stop and focus on comfort and dignity of the dog. And it was great. And we, he ended up having like another three or four weeks of like a really lovely experience. And then it came, it was obvious that he was, you know, nearing the end. And so we ended up asking around and, and found this amazing, you know, uh, dog hospice service that comes and does euthanasia in the home. And uh, we were all, I think, quite trepidatious about that. Uh, but the guy, I spoke with the doctor a number of times and he reassured me that it was something that people ended up all kind of universally finding to be a, a positive. And so I, we all sat around in the living room one afternoon and he came over and, uh, you know, put him down, put the dog down, at, you know, right there in front of all of us. And it was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had. I mean, all four of us and this doctor were, you know, his, not hysterical, but but crying, you know, mm -hmm. actively crying. And um, it was really beautiful and sad at the same time. And, and our puppy, who was kind of a menace, um, you know, he was just, you know, a few months old at the time. He was always just a pain in the ass. I mean, he was always getting <laughs> I think he could tell like he was pretty freaked out by what was going on. Like he just sat there and didn't mm. move for whatever it was, 30 minutes and uh, was like the best behavior he's ever had in his life. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I yeah. mean, he probably did have some awareness. Of, I think he of... realized he read the room. He was like, this is not a time for me to act out. Like I'm going <laughs> to show you. My, my parents had a similar experience there. They had a lab that was, I think, four or five and had a lymph node and ultimately had lymphoma. And they actually used this similar service where they did the euthanasia in the home, too. So everybody could say goodbye. It was Which, great. I will never do it a different way. I mean, it was brutal and sad. But, you know, the alternative of just like, you know, especially during that time when and this was March of 2021. So like still a lot of COVID restrictions. Uh, right. Just the idea of like you know having handing the dog off to somebody walking and him walking away and you never see him again like it just that was just not going to happen for us and so this were this was great and I think we all feel really fortunate to have been able to have that experience and and it was made that much better by this this amazingly caring doctor and I remember asking him like how in the hell did you get into this the career it seems like the worst thing in the entire <laughs> world like you basically you just go from house to house and like have these crying fits with these sad sad experiences where you put these dogs down and it, i mean his response was just like this is the best job in the world like i love this job and i still don't really understand it um i believe him i believe that he gets something amazing out of it but i just still don't understand how he's chosen this career path because it seems to me to be just like gut-wrenching and brutal i mean I, I just think it's another one of those things that we can learn from vet medicine that they actually practice a lot more humanity than we do and and human medicine and yeah. i mean i understand i can understand why he appreciates it i think you actually do too i mean it sounds like from what you said you do get some 
satisfaction and, and guiding someone to a quote good death. So that's, that's what that's he's doing. Point. I guess that's a good point. Uh, I mean, I was thinking about it from the content, you know, so from the perspective of me as, as the, you know, the life player. preserver. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess that's fair. I mean, you're so emotionally attached to these animals. You to live with their family. No, that's a good point. Uh, can I ask you just a few random like cardiology metabolism sure. like nerd questions? Yeah. Um, okay. So Are you recording this? It, I I was planning on sharing I'm this. Kidding. If you I'm don't kidding. want me to, we no, I can That's certainly fine, yeah. edit it. That, okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I just have always wondered about the association of statins with diabetes and what your take on that is in terms of diabetes being a primary risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And statins being a primary uh, preventative. A, yeah, it's a phenomenal paradox. And what I've told, so first of all, it is real. The it, impact is really modest, right? So like, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but just roughly like 1.1 fold increased risk of developing diabetes over a lifetime. If you're taking statins, it's, it's seen not just in people who take statins, but in people who have loss of function mutations or alleles in hmg coir reductase okay. uh, it's seen with other lipid lowering therapies although not with pcsk9 inhibitors and not with people with mutations in pcsk9 i think there's really interesting biology there that's you know worth exploring what i've told patients all along is look we know that statins save lives and we know they do that despite this very real risk of sort of modest increased risk of developing diabetes. Um, so it's a risk, you know, I think it's a risk that we're prepared to take and we can deal with it. Like if you end up developing diabetes on a statin, and by the way, I don't think I've ever had a patient develop diabetes on a statin, at least not that I know of. Okay. But uh, I mean, I've had plenty of patients with diabetes right. on statins, but I don't think I can recall a single patient who didn't have diabetes who developed type 2 diabetes as an adult on a statin. In any case, you can deal with it. There are now multiple ways to help treat that consequence and avoid any of the complications of diabetes. Um, and again, the comfort is that we know, and even in the genetics, we know that you know these mutations that confer lower LDL cholesterol confer lower risk of cardiovascular disease and death and do so despite a very modest increase in risk of diabetes. So that's kind of the my take on it. Uh, okay. I think the bigger question is now that we know that there are other drugs that modulate lipids in a favorable way and reduce risk of cardiovascular events, but don't increase the risk of diabetes. Is that something to pay attention to? I think from a research standpoint, yes. Clinically, probably not yet, but it is certainly intriguing. Do you think that there will be genetic markers <laughs> that we can like, be able to pick out who's going to have this association or is there some type of uh, risk stratification that's like, Oh, this person has X, Y, and Z risk factors. They are more likely to develop yeah. diabetes from a statin. I think it's probably simpler than that, that it, you know, there are a number of people who are going to get developed diabetes. It's kind of, I guess, a little bit like, like, uh, you know, uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy or maybe the better one is, is, uh, is preeclampsia, right. That women who develop, mm -hmm. Uh, or gestational diabetes is a but that's probably the best analogy, right? Gestational diabetes, women who develop diabetes during pregnancy are much more likely to develop diabetes independently afterwards. And so I sort of look at it as it's like it's a stress 
the statin is a stress that's unmasking a predisposition to develop diabetes that probably would develop anyway. Anyway, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and with the prevalence and popularity of saunas and cold plunges, uh, there's the the data that shows if you have you know two or three or more sessions of heat exposure sauna a week that it reduces your chance of mortality related cardiovascular events by you know 50 70 percent whatever it is i i haven't quite wrapped my head around that i was just wondering if you had a theory as as to why and i was wondering if maybe you thought that heat shock protein stabilized plaques i i guess i don't really uh buy it okay Uh, all right that was that's another option too definitely yeah um i think the quality of the science there is pretty low yeah, and, uh, it's essentially I, epidemiology. I'm super skeptical and uh, probably just don't buy it. So I have a hard time speculating on uh, you know what, what might be going on because I just don't think it's real. Okay, I, that makes me feel better in a way. <laughs> um, and then how do you think emotional health relates to coronary vascular disease? Uh I mean, we, there's all kinds of, of studies going back, you know, to the early days showing, you know, I think there were examples at the, the, my favorite ones are they sort of like, you know, uh, I can't, what would you call it? Uh, randomized, whatever, random event, like world events, like when, when there are a bunch of heart attacks after our team wins or loses the world cup, that's kind of interesting or after an earthquake or some other natural disaster, I think. Like uh, Sakasubo, essentially. But there's that, but then there's also an increased risk of actual, you know, plaque rupture MI of STEMI. Okay. Uh, and, and that was, you know, work that was done by Jim Muller, I think back in like the 1980s about like stress and the impact of that as a trigger for MI. Uh, hmm. so I don't think it's like, I think there's no doubt that there's an a, impact of acute stress on risk of bad things happening. Um, it's probably not dissimilar from people you hear about who have a STEMI or a plaque rupture event after a rigorous exercise. Like, I think it's probably similar, um, similar in some ways. Uh, we also know that like the morning is that time when people tend to have more coronary events and the morning is, you know, sort of when cortisol peaks. And so anyway, I think that's all out there. The question about chronic stress, I just don't know. I guess the, my, what I tell patients and this may be a cop-out is I find a lot of people, especially in places like San Francisco, who have a lot of time and freedom to think about stress and right. stressing about their stress. And so what <laughs> I tell people is like, don't make stress something that becomes a huge stress point for you. Like, don't be so stressed that you're under so much stress that it causes you more stress. Like um, we live in a stressful world, a world full of chronic stress and even in the best scenarios, even people with a lot of resources experience a lot of chronic stress. And obviously there are places where that's worse than not. And you want to avoid that just because it's miserable. But, but I think mostly, uh, you know, it's an area that I tell people not to, the best thing I can tell you is not to spend a huge amount of time worrying about it. Cause I think people I see end up more concerned about their stress than their original stress. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I, I, I just have a random curiosity. This is not a question. You could 
poo-poo it completely if you sure. wanted to. But I wonder if you could do like a two-year intervention of, you know, name the psychological intervention for stress reduction and do a pre and post intervention like calcium score or something like that. Just Yeah, I mean, calcium score is such a lagging indicator. I'm not even sure it would be likely to show anything. It would be just hard to power a study like that. I think okay. you might be able to power it to events i guess i mean yeah i mean i guess it comes down to sort of the question of how you even measure stress and is there really a valid way to do that now do you use some combination of sort of blood-based markers with vital signs yeah i, I don't i don't know is it, maybe, it's maybe like heart rate variability in yeah. addition to those things too i don't know who knows i mean i the heart rate variability is another one of these metrics and markers that like has all this weight in the popular literature and on twitter and other places but is it really like is it really important as anything other than like an interesting research epidemiological tool right i, I don't know i think people again people spend a lot of time stressing about their hrv being too low or their v their vo2 their vo2 max being too low like on their apple watch or other things and i just don't know what that means really i'm not sure it means a lot yeah that's those are all very fair points and I appreciate you humoring my questions here. Sure. Um, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that you had thought about leading up to this, or are you feeling pretty good? No, I feel I feel pretty good. I uh, it's been a fun conversation. Definitely an unusual one, not what I expected. This is um, I've done too many podcasts over my life, and uh, this is definitely one that is unlike any other in a good way. Well, that's very kind of you, and thanks for spending the time with me. I'm going to just wrap up real quick. So the contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. Thanks for listening.